Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of ruin and window, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public service professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Republican Beth Feely, Libertarian Alex Hirsch, Libertarian Brian Lambrecht, and Republican Chris Veronis. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O, of course. You can watch us and see us uh, on, on our website, BeyondTheBeltway.com. Even if you miss this program, you can always find it there. And, of course, we're live on Facebook. You can follow us, Bruce Dumont, uh, Beyond the Beltway on Facebook. And also, we're live every Sunday night on YouTube. You can see us on YouTube. And, again, uh, that's the audio and video. And it is both hours of, of the program. We have lots to talk about this evening. A little bit later on, we'll hear from a very close friend of uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush, who passed away a couple of days ago, and he'll share some thoughts about the passing of his friend and the former president of the United States. But again, he passed away at age 94 in Houston, Texas. And again, uh, the world and many political leaders around the United States are offering their comments and assessment of his role, uh, not only as an initial war hero, uh, but also as the head of the CIA, the head of the Republican Party, uh, an ambassador to China, uh, Vice President of the United States, and then President of the United States, one-term president uh, who beat Michael Dukakis in 1988 and was defeated uh, by Bill Clinton and Ross Perot in 1992. Um, we're not going to spend the whole show on it. If you have a specific comment or assessment you would like to make about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, feel free to do so, but we will not do the whole, it won't be the whole program uh, that we focus on this evening, but I want to get some react. We have a couple of new guests with us this evening, so I'm uh, Alex Hirsch. I'm going to start with you. Uh, you're a libertarian. Yes. You've been involved in politics. You've managed some campaigns, mm-hmm. primarily the Democrats. Yep. But uh, you're, you're 27 years old. What uh, what reflection or impre- impression at all do you have of George Bush? Uh, I don't have much uh, personal memories, considering I was, I believe, one years old when uh, he <laughs> lost his reelection. Um, of course, you know. Someone losing, you know, their life and their loved ones—that's obviously tragic for the family. Um, and my personal view was of his policies: not a big fan, um, not really a big fan of people who promote uh, unelected spies, like mm-hmm. from the CIA. So, but unfortunate that uh, a man like that passed away. So. Okay. Uh, Beth Feely also joins us. She is a Republican, and welcome, making your first visit to this program. Uh, your assessment of uh, the late president. Uh, Well, I, too, you know, uh, send condolences to his family, and um, I do think we lost a great statesman. I mean, he was really one of the more qualified presidents that we've ever had in some ways, just where, you know, he was educated, but he went to, he chose to fight in a war. Uh, He, instead of going back to the East Coast, uh, went into business for himself and uh, and made his own way, Mm -hmm. Um, went into politics, had a lot of accomplishments. So in some ways, you could argue that he was incredibly successful. Um, My memory, probably greatest memory, was being in college and watching the... um, 
that first Gulf War unfold on TV, that was a first, and that's, so that's mm -hmm. what I think of most when I think of his presidency. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully, that was wrapped up very quickly. So, yeah. uh, Chris Ronis, well, you're, I, the, you're the senior man of the table this evening. I, I, I kind of feel um, like a, a bystander in a museum, uh, you know, enjoying an exhibit. This is really a bygone era, unfortunately, when you review the, the Bush mm -hmm. life, the Bush presidency. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, still... These are stories I think we need right now. Um, we need to see that there are uh, there's a choice. There's different ways to go. Um, this guy was, as Beth said, consummate insider, eminently qualified, but a good person inside. You know, there's a loop on TV where he's with Dana Carvey and he's you know yeah. accepting. He's laughing yeah, at himself yeah. essentially. There's another story where uh, his Secret Service agent's son had leukemia. Uh, he shaved his own head. And mm -hmm. a show of support for right. his Secret Service agent and his son. So, I, you know, conservatives never really trusted George H.W. Bush. And I think throughout his career, he had a multiple personality disorder. I mean, he started out as a Goldwater firebrand yeah. and kind of oscillated back and forth. But I, at, at the end of the day, this is good. That this tribute to George H.W. Bush, he, he, he may not have been a good politician, but I think it's fair to, to give him some statesman status. Uh, Brian Lambert, you're another libertarian this evening. What, what's your what's your take on this internationalist president? Um, I can agree with everybody here when they talk about class and, and statesmanship. I, I can understand that. As a libertarian, we generally don't like the idea of. Uh, of, of, of idolization of politicians in general or presidents. So looking back at him, you know, most of us would agree he wasn't the worst president. Uh, he wasn't even the worst one named Bush. Uh, you know, he, he did, there was a lot of good things uh, that happened under him, things he handled the end of the Cold War very well. The main thing he did was not meddle in it, and that's a problem that presidents can't do. And he, uh, he was able to, um, uh, to be very calm during that process. Uh, but at the same time, he was a big, you know, uh, drug warrior promoting the drug war. And I think there was some meddling, too, in not Colombia. That was that was Bill Clinton. Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Yes. So, you know, there's the good and the bad that comes with it. But overall, you know, I, I can agree with everybody at the table as a, a fair statesman and, and a wonderful uh, life dedicated to uh, public service. He is uh, when you compare him to our current president, it is it is night and day Two complete schools. And and yet. Uh, we will see whether or not this president has the ability to get reelected. George Bush did not because he basically violated a campaign pledge. Mm -hmm. And a campaign pledge that Donald Trump made was talked about building the wall. I think that's going to be that, – that's why building that wall is very important to him. Let's go to uh, Jorge, who's listening to us, or George, listening to us in El Paso, Texas, on KTSM. You've got a comment. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Yes, I wanted to comment that um – in the late winter of 88, I was at Georgetown, and uh, although the president's campaign had been down in the cafeteria where I was entering, mm -hmm. the majority leaders were. And um, I went up into New Hampshire with that campaign for Bob Doe, and I recall that um, I was left alone outside one of the um, polling places as the uh, polls were coming in to vote mm -hmm. and um, holding the Bob Doe sign. And, um, I got the reaction from them that um, I sensed that uh, George Bush was going to win in New Hampshire beside um, Bob Doe, even though he had won in Iowa. And um, I was struck by the uh, magnificence of the campaign that uh, he conducted, the uh, vice president did in New Hampshire. And um, I came away all impressed with um, him as a person. I was
there. Well, thank you very much. But again, that was a, that that primary was a very bitter campaign. I mean, Bob Bob Dole and George Bush were don't were, lie were not, about my record. <laughs> they were not they were not good friends at all at the beginning, during, or at the end. I don't know how yeah. they ever made up, but uh, well, yeah. Not and, close. and so I, the, the, Bob Dole was on the on the on the circuit, and he, he said really glowing things. Called him one of his close friends. Yeah. Uh, um, and the reason why I say these are stories we need to hear is it wasn't just Bob Dole, but it was Bill Clinton too, and that yes. was a real a real friendship. Right. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine is the phone number. If you want to call in and offer your comment about George Bush, uh, feel free to do so. We will continue with that discussion and add new things to the table when we come back from Chicago. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- 799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at bryansellsthedesert.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, we have no one around the table this evening, including myself, who have any specific stories to tell about any personal relationship uh, with uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush, but a very good friend of myself and this program, Ed Bernane, is, and he joins us on the phone from his home in suburban uh, Chicago. Ed, nice to have you with us, and again, uh, I know you and the president were very close, so my condolences uh, as someone who worked very closely with him for many years. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, and it's nice to be with you. I'm sorry I can't be with you in uh, in person, but... uh uh, it's been a, a rough couple of days, and I'm happy to talk about uh, my friend. I consider him to have been a, a friend. I, I didn't uh, initially, but uh, there are some stories behind that. But I'm, I'm happy to be with you. I want to begin with uh, where you first met him, because one. By the, we should mention, by the way, you were once upon a time you were the political editor of the Daily Herald in suburban Chicago, and then you became involved in Republican politics. You were a lead advance man. You, you went all over the world with President Reagan, and also you went all over the world with then uh, President George Bush that followed. But how how did you uh, how did you first meet George Bush? Was it as well, vice president? As as a candidate for vice president, uh, I was uh, very involved in the 1980 Reagan campaign. I was involved in the 76 Reagan campaign right. also. But in the 1980 Reagan campaign, when he was successful, uh, I was one of the communications coordinators for the Midwest, primarily uh, for Illinois. And uh, when uh, leading up to the Republican convention, of course, uh, George Bush was uh, a uh, considered a, a strong uh, contender for the Republican nomination. So there was a, and, and the Bush operatives, or the Bush people supporters in Illinois had a pretty strong uh, organization. 
and uh, so there was a little bit of friction between the uh, the Bush supporters and the uh, and the Reagan supporters leading up to that uh, uh, convention. And of course, uh, once Reagan got the nomination and he selected George Bush, then things uh, uh, changed. Uh, at least at the upper levels, they changed. But at some of the lower levels, uh, people who were working out in the field and had to deal uh, on a uh, uh, not in a combat role, but certainly a not a real friendly role. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I got to know a number of the Bush people, and uh, but I had never met George Bush himself until after he got the Republican nomination. And, uh, of course, once he was uh, Ronald Reagan's choice for the vice presidential position, uh, he became our choice and, uh, and our candidate. And uh, I had not met him until uh, that summer after the, uh, after the convention before the, uh, the election actually got underway. And I met him for the first time. Uh, actually at the uh, Illinois State Fair down in Springfield when he was uh, uh, attending the fair as the Republican candidate, as the uh, uh, candidate for vice president. And I uh, was down there doing some work for the Reagan campaign at the time. Uh, candidate Reagan, Governor Reagan at the time was, uh, or former Governor Reagan at the time was not there. But uh, we were trying to merge the two campaign organizations to try to have the strongest possible team in Illinois. And uh, George Bush was there, and uh, I was asked if I wanted to meet him, and certainly I did. I was going to be involved in the campaign, and he was uh, it was his campaign now, too. He was uh, one of the candidates. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was uh, uh, said, well, come on over, and we'll have you sit down and, uh, and meet him. And uh, and I did. We sat in a room inside. This was the the fair, which was out in the fairgrounds in Springfield, but in one of the the interior or inside rooms. And uh, he was meeting with some of the other staff people and some of the other Republican Party leaders. There were a lot of them who had not been supporters of his, uh, but who now were. He was he was on the team. He was on the ticket, and we were all part of the team. And I sat down and talked uh, to him for a little while. And uh, when uh, I think it was Don Totten at the time, who was the uh, the Reagan coordinator in Illinois, uh, introduced me to uh, Bush. And uh, George Bush said, yes, I, I know who you are. And I had never met him and uh, didn't know. And he says, I know that you were involved in, uh, you were very actively involved in the Reagan uh, primary campaign. And I know that you uh, had worked for Phil Crane, which I had years before, mm -hmm. and I was uh, really surprised. I was actually stunned that here a candidate for vice president of the United States uh, had some background information on me, or he he had done it's as homework. much homework as that, and he knew who I was. Yeah. Well, that was a good point. Now, I want to ask you a couple of other questions, historic, and, and I, I don't think the, the media probably hasn't gotten into them Today, they will in the next several days as this unfolds. But I want to go back to that 1980 convention in, uh, in Detroit. Uh, for a while, there was floated the idea that Gerald Ford would almost be a co-president because the Republican Party establishment, which was not who the base, that was not Ronald Reagan's base, they were worried about this California governor uh, actor, and they were worried about his stability. 
And so they were trying to move forward with Gerald Ford, and Henry Kissinger was involved, as I recall, in trying to negotiate that. That idea fell apart. Now, was, in your view, as you look back on it, was, uh, was, was George Herbert Walker Bush the backup to that? Was, was he forced on that ticket by the establishment, a wing of the Republican Party? I don't know if I would go so far as to say he was forced, but he was a certainly he was a uh, a popular candidate among Republicans. He was considered the Reagan people, the Reagan campaign, the Reagan forces were generally considered much more conservative than was George Bush. Bush right. was considered, I don't want to say a liberal, uh, but he was more to the left than than Reagan was and uh, I think that Bush wasn't the uh, uh, the most popular among other rank-and-file Republicans. Once well, let's, Ed, Reagan, let, let, let me put a fine-tune on it. He was the poster boy for um, country club Republicans. He was a patrician. I mean, culturally speaking, he and Ronald Reagan were about as far apart as you possibly could insofar as who they were, their upbringing, their, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the uh, up-from-nowhere bootstraps of Reagan and, and the son of a United States senator. So it, was, it looked like oil and water when, when you started to discuss it. Was, did you agree with it at that point? Well, you know, that goes back uh, 1980 is uh, 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago. And I don't recall, in, in my involvement in the campaign, you know, 40 years ago, I was... Uh, uh, I don't know how I can't even my math isn't good enough to remember how uh, how old I was back then. But uh, I wasn't uh, so in, finely in tuned to all of it. Uh, even my involvement in the Reagan campaign was to uh, to communicate, get the message out to the, right. the Illinois news media and so forth, and not to get involved in the high level decisions right. or the arguments on on what right. was going on. Now we there was a sense that. Uh, uh, Bush was uh, was a strong candidate. He was somebody that those of us who were involved early on in the Reagan campaign were not particularly fond of. Right. I think, and, and there yeah. there certainly there were uh, there were philosophical issues, there were ideological issues, there were. You know, I was a, uh, a what would be considered back then somewhat of a hardline conservative. I had right. been on the staff of Phil Crane, and of course Crane right. became a candidate at some point, That's and was right. working with Don Totten and, and others. Right. And these were people who were were pretty right. much on the conservative side. Yeah, and there and, was and there was there was a lot of there was a lot of bitterness there. But t- take us from that location. Take us to uh, the many trips that you went around the world, either with the vice president or with President Bush. You spent a lot of time on Air Force One. Uh, what are your rec- recollections of, of, of that relationship that you had with the, with the President of the United States on Air Force One? Well, it was a, it, you know, that's a, it's a pretty tight ship. And uh, I was amused today to hear that they're, they're moving, um, uh, taking some rows of seats out of Air Force One. Uh, the plane that he is that has been used been used is a, is a 747. In the early days, it was a 707. In fact, uh, President Bush was the first one to use the 747, and, and I remember being one of the. Uh, uh, I traveled with him and, and spent a lot of time on that plane. But they were talking today that they're going to be removing. There, there's a new plane coming, uh, right. one of the larger Boeing's that uh, has not been put in service yet. But they're using one of the uh, 747s to to move President Bush from um, from 
Texas to uh, to Washington, and then probably back to, to Texas for the uh, the later part of the week. And they're moving some of the seats out because there's not enough room. Now, this was not a an airplane that was uh, tightly configured. Um, we had in the staff, we had very spacious uh, staff facilities. Uh, the front end of the plane was the uh, the president's office, and uh, and their actually their their overnight accommodations place. They had a a full bedroom, and they had plenty of privacy. And and yeah. and the senior staff, which I was considered senior yeah. staff when right. I was doing the traveling, sure. uh, had plenty of uh, space. And then Ed, in the back Ed, of the pl- let, let me interrupt for just a second, as we've sure. we've got a minute left. G- give me thirty seconds of the adjectives that you think best describe. George Herbert Walker Bush. Well, I would say surprisingly touchable and approachable. He was he was very he was a very good listener. He was very sensitive to uh, to who he was talking to and what they, he he was hearing, and it was always direct eye contact. He was not looking to see who else was waiting in line. Uh, he was, I think, a very sensitive and very uh, uh, understanding and kind person, and uh, as was his wife, Barbara, although I think Barbara uh, was a little bit uh, harsher with some of the staff people than he was. Ed Bernane, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, a good friend of yours, a friend of many in the country, and we all offer our condolences tonight. I'm Bruce Dumont from Beyond the Beltway, back shortly. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida, so why not experience it as it was meant to be, where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sit cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Chris Dumont back in Chicago, and uh, Chris Veronis, you, you wanted to add something to the discussion of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and his relationship with Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it, it just goes to show you that timing is everything in politics. Um, Reagan almost defeated Gerald Ford as sitting president in the primaries. And when, in 76. In 1976. And when 1980 rolled around, there was an idea floated, and I think it really it came from the Reagan camp, which was to put Ford on the ticket, and this would be a unity ticket, and it would bring together all wings of the party. Um, but a reporter went to Ford, former president, the, the, the only yeah. unelected president yeah, yeah. In, the, in the nation, and said to him, this sounds, what you're describing sounds like a co-presidency. Is that accurate? Ford um, couldn't climb down down off his ego and said, yeah, that's exactly what I would call it. And as soon as that got back to Reagan, the, the, this, this idea was off. It was, it was deep-sexed completely. And George Bush emerged as the front-runner. He was uh, the man, a, yeah, man standing. Right, to, to balance the ticket. 
um, to California, Texas. And it, and it just goes to show you, and I think this is important, George Bush really wasn't a good politician. Uh, you know, he ran as a Goldwater firebrand in 64, lost to Ralph Yarbrough, ran again for, this is for Senate in mm-hmm. Texas, ran again against Lloyd Benson, was defeated. Right. And Richard Nixon, um, this is like a losing political, yeah. po- politico, brought him in the fold. He became a chairman of the Republican National yes, Committee. Became, Watergate. Watergate. He, he became head of the CIA. He was ambassador to China. So yeah. Nixon really made George H.W. George Bush. Yeah. Well, also keep in mind, he lost two elections for Congress in Texas, and he lost two Senate seats in uh, races in Texas. Yeah. So T- timing is everything. Watch out. Let's switch gears. Again, I, I think uh, there's going to be uh, as there will be for every president, there's going to be uh, uh, obviously a memorial service and the next couple of days on television. You'll hear a lot more about George Bush and uh, hopefully uh, it'll be uh, most of it's going to be very positive as these television coverages uh, generally are. And it's certainly understanding. But again, I think history uh, will look into some of these other things. And I think I think from a political standpoint, this will be my last point, from a political standpoint, had uh, Ronald Reagan had the confidence to select Jack Kemp as his running mate in 1980, I think we would have seen the evolution of the Republican Party to, uh, if not where it is today, to a, to a very strong conservative party uh, as opposed to with President Bush. That's my, that's my opinion. Um, and I also, the, you keep, keep in mind that you know, when you when you look at at challenges to incumbent Republicans, uh, George Bush was challenged uh, by uh, by Pat Buchanan. I mean, he opened up, and then uh, Ross Perot was there to continue the message. And really, the core of those messages, much of it, is at the core of the Donald Trump message that led to the election of Donald Trump. So, Donald Trump and George Bush, again, I think they're as far apart as you could possibly imagine two human beings being. But again, I think the angst, the anger that many Republicans had towards uh, accommodationists or internationalists like George Bush, I think that's what, uh, that's what they rebelled against uh, in 2016. And even when uh, Donald Trump came out and, and criticized uh, President Bush, George, George Bush, uh, 41, when he criticized him for what he did with the, the Iraq war. Uh, it, it shocked a lot of people that the person who uttered those words ended up being the Republican nominee. It was, all, it was then safe enough to criticize George Bush and the internationalist wing of the party. And if you would have thought of that, if you would have thought of that at the beginning of the campaign, everybody was thinking that uh, you know, Jeb Bush was going to be the, the heir apparent, and he uh, first won out. So people can talk all about how much George Bush was a beloved figure, but I'm not sure he was a very beloved figure with the Republican electorate in 2016. Would you agree with that? I would, and it's interesting that it took a real outsider to open up the, uh, make the opening so that people could criticize that. That's right. interesting, and I think that's the role that Donald Trump has played, um, and that's what got him elected. Yeah. As a libertarian, I want to ask you, we have two libertarians here, so I'm going to ask each of you a question. <clears throat> Are you closer to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? 
I like to not – I like to say neither because it drives me nuts on so many different levels when you want to look at where they're at. When it comes to Democrats, for example – and you're talking in general, right? Yes. In, in general, uh, the Libertarian Party has supported uh, gay marriage and equality rights since we became a party in 1971. Uh, Democrats have finally caught up to us on that. They're also starting to finally catch up to us on things like drug legalization. Not that we want to legalize drugs because we all want to party and get stoned. I mean, I know there's people that do that in the party too. But the point is that you know we want to treat it like a medical issue as opposed to a criminal justice issue. Um, and then, of course, we're anti-war, which is kind of a Democrat issue sometimes, depending on you know, who's in the presidency, who's in the White House. So we identify with, with um, <clears throat> liberals, I should say, on that side of it. But when it comes to the other side of it, economically, that's where people try to pin us down as being very conservative. Uh, you know, we believe that uh, we were, I am a vicious supporter of the free market. I love and passionately support civil rights, and I'm a vicious supporter of the free market. And quite frankly, you can't, you can't have one without sacrificing the other because they both go hand in hand when it comes right down to the individual human being. Alex, what's your answer to the question? Uh, I definitely agree. I think uh, more often than not, people tend to look at libertarians as kind of a right-leaning um, consensus group. Republicans who smoke pot is what we get labeled. And I don't even touch the stuff, but yeah. But I think it's really, um, you know, you take the best of of both sides, I guess, of, you know, freedom, liberties, um, economic uh, liberties, uh, and especially personal freedom. So it's hard just to say I'm closer to this or that because, you know, depending on the issue, which I think is how most Americans see themselves, not necessarily as libertarians, but it's very hard for most Americans to be strictly one side or the other. There's views that how fluctuate. Do you, how, do you, how do you personally see the issue with the caravan, what's happening on the border. What, what, what is the answer? What is the civil or your answer? What is your answer to illegal immigration and, and what's happening? So I am a big proponent of uh, open borders and the elimination of the welfare state, um, which is, I think, kind of you can have one or you can have the other. You can have closed borders, put a wall up and have welfare for everybody, um, or you can have no border wall, open immigration. And I don't want to say the problem with uh, you know, suss itself out, but you can even go further back and see why are these people like wanting to come besides, you know, obviously the opportunities that America presents, um, but it really comes down to uh, failed foreign policies um, and also, you know, the drug war being a major factor. But again, you don't believe in, in foreign intervention, right? So what would, you, what would you do in Guatemala and Honduras to keep the Guatemalans and the Hondurans there as opposed to rushing our borders? I'd probably start with legalizing drugs um, and ending the drug war because that's you have to kind of look upstream or downstream from where these problems come from and start, and I think that's a major issue. Beth, what's your reaction to these um, fallen Republicans? <laughs> come back. I'm assuming we were there in the first place. <laughs> yes. no, no, I don't think they were. That was a joke. Um, I, I think I, I disagree. Um, I don't think the drug wars are at the heart of the economic problems in these countries. Um, I think people are coming here for economic opportunity, mm-hmm. and we can get into the difference between that and uh, yeah, asylum that they're claiming. Um, I, I think we need a border. Um, I think we should have laws. I think we should enforce them. If we want to change the laws, let's change the laws. Uh, but I do think that a border is important um, and that we should know who's coming in. Yeah. Chris? I, um, uh, unfortunately... Um, this caravan issue is just a symptom of the big thing to me, which is we have a broken system. We have a broken system, outdated rules that cannot accommodate 
these prevailing trends, there, which is one of which is mass migration. You know, supposedly, like in 50 to 70 years, 80% of the world's population will be clustered in urban centers. So, you know, we, we've got to prepare for that. And so, you know, you talk about the caravan. So how do you fix the system? Give me your magic so, so you have to look at why are people migrating here, especially now in large groups, which is a new thing. Uh, you know, it, it costs... Can it, we, can it, we it answer costs, that question, It though? costs close to $10,000 to hire a smuggler to bring you in. Right. When you travel with large groups, there's safety in numbers. It's more efficient. Um, it's more of a spectacle, and um, and but you know, and when you look at our rules, what you had in Tijuana last week, um, we've got this standard for asylum called uh, credible fear, which is the standard. The standard for meeting credible fear is perfunctory. So you meet the standard, and then you 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 get thrown into the system to be processed. And if you have children, you, um, after two months, you cannot be detained. And you're given a temporary work. You're given temporary work. Is that status. right? That's absolutely right. And then you're put into the interior of the country, gone forever. I, we have a broken system, and I don't think it's fair what is, to say. Is, is fixing the system saying we can't do that anymore? Absolutely. One hundred percent. We have to maintain our borders. And and, and sure. what happens, Brian? To you, mm-hmm. what? Ha- how do you keep those people that are rushing our borders? How do you keep them in their home country? Well, what do you have to do in their home country to keep them there? Nothing. We don't want to do anything in their home That's country because right. we just make things worse. We only the only thing we can control is what's here with inside our borders. And even though I do support, okay. I, I support an open border system. And what Alex said earlier about uh, you can't have a welfare system and an open border system that that Chicago economist Milton Friedman and I, I think he's very right on that. But all we can do is affect what we do here. Talking about the uh, the drug war, the reason why that's very important is look at the south side of Chicago. I actually called into your show once about this about six, seven months ago is that when drugs are, when, when they're made illegal, when, when, the, when the punishment for them is so high, and I'm not talking about uh, specifically the gangs, we'll, we'll just start with the users. When you do that, the price of it goes up. It's just like any kind of prohibition. You make the price go up. When the price gets high enough, it becomes worth killing people for. That's where you get the gangs. That's what's happening in a lot of these countries down there. A lot of people are fleeing, not just because of the bad economic policy, because it's dangerous to live there and they can't get out of it. We, we have the same thing in Chicago. We're going to pause. I want to get a reaction from everybody else when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City, just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City at HiltonUniversal.com. They let you be the star in Hollywood. Bruce Dumont back live coast to coast on the radio and also on YouTube live. 1-800-723-8289. We've never gotten a call from those 
watching us on YouTube. So if there's somebody out there or on Facebook, give us a call. 1-800-723-8289. You were going to uh, make a point. Uh, Just about what's going on in these countries and why people are coming. Um, You know, I don't know what exactly the answer is, how you convince people in these home countries of how to build a better economy so people don't come here. But I do know that if this, if if waves of people keep coming up here, this will be, it's kind of, I think all eyes are watching how we do handle this one. Yes. And we need to handle this, I think, appropriately um, with without any or as little violence as possible um, because it is going to set an example and that it was described as like a new social technology like I think you're going to see this as yet a new way of people um, trying to arrive in the country we are not set up for it um, so we better get to work quick uh, to figure out how to do so. You're suggesting that you want open borders literally you you want anyone that's living anywhere in the world to be able to walk into this country without any sure. paperwork, any background. Yeah, I mean, and would, how quickly would we run out of space? I mean, we still have a like physical space. Yes, I mean, physical ideally, space. It, as well as that, the political space. Sure. If you say, well, we got a lot of space in in Montana. I mean, Montana could be you know one of the most populous states uh, with your policy. Well, I think and they um, may not want that. I think a lot of the reasons why a lot of people come to the United States is because there's a track record of um, providing welfare. Um, pretty much no questions asked. And I'm not saying welfare is, not having welfare is um, an option. I think, you know, citizens, if you want to keep looking at it in like a state model, if we're going to, let me back up. In a perfect world where there would be open borders and there would be no welfare, um, voluntary transactions, and that's the ideal way. But when you say no welfare, what what do you mean by that? I mean, there are citizens in the country who receive welfare. Yes. Some of them receive welfare through, you know, disability, a variety of other things. Are you saying get rid of that as well? Ideally. Ideally, I think having no welfare, but having an open What happens if you're a citizen of the United States and you have a physical or mental disability? What happens to that person? Um... They, I, this is all obviously an ideal, ideal world because once you start growing the size of the state, which is you know inevitable, ideally I think we should have smaller states. I think states' rights should be. Um, no, but I, I want to go to the specific person sure. when you again when you said open borders, yes. that suggests we have a lot of space, and then you add to that no welfare. Well, first of all, if we got rid of welfare, maybe there would be fewer people coming to the United States. Because of, the, because of the perception, sure. this is the land of opportunity. And if it isn't opportunity because of your, uh, your ability to, to find a job and work a job, the other way is there's a welfare system that sometimes people use, frequently use. Yes. And, and some of them are their services that are being provided to people who are not citizens, which makes the people who are citizens, they're, they're upset because they can't be served. You're smiling. <laughs> I know this. You go as far as he says. No, I mean, a totally open no, no, borders. We, we will talk about it. Um, one thing we have to keep in mind with regard when people coming in the country, even in Ellis Island, they were checking people to make sure they weren't bringing in the plague or something like that. Uh, I do think you it's worth a sponsor too. Uh, yeah. you, you did. I, I do think we can have a more o- open border system. I would like to know who's in the country, but I don't think there's a problem with people that want to come here. I don't like having quotas. I don't like having numbers or limitations. I think it hurts us. Immigration has always been good for this country with regard to an ID card to business owners. A nas- I don't like a national ID. Why not? Card. 
Uh, I don't like the government having, uh, I don't like the federal government having as much information on us as they already have. It's bad enough we've got an NSA looking through our phone records and digging through my porn and my email. I, there's no reason for any of uh, the, the federal government to have but any of that. But when you vote, when you vote. Let, leave it up to the local jurisdictions. How do, they, how, do they, how do they know? How do they know who you are? Leave it up to the local jurisdictions. People have driver's licenses. Should they the, have state should IDs. Should Illinois have a state ID? I think that there could be a state ID between the states. I think it's up to them to decide how they want to do that. I don't believe in a real ID act. I don't believe in a national ID. I think it'll be a waste of money, and it's not going to eliminate fraud. Are you for IDs? Um, I agree with the not having a national ID, but um, if it's on the local municipality level, that's fine. Um, for voting specifically, I think I don't see why there isn't why that's out of the question um, to have an ID to vote. I could. What, about, what do you it, think? As a compromise, Chip, to reach a compromise, 100%. And I, I think more than anything else, what we need, what we really, really need, that's unfortunately, you don't see it over the horizon happening, is a serious, wide-ranging debate on immigration. Why should this country have an immigration? Ostensibly, at the end of the day, it should be to uh, benefit the American society and right. to advance the American idea. And to bring so, to the country the jobs that need to be filled. Exactly. Americans it, will not exactly. do those jobs. Because the reality is, reality is the entire world, the industrialized world, Europe especially, is suffering from negative population growth. Russia is probably at the bottom of the list. Japan. And, and so the only reason why the United States... Did, was not on the list of negative population growth is because of immigration. So if you want to remain a superpower, if you want to remain, have the highest standard of living in the country, immigration is part of the answer. But the rules are outdated, okay? It's upside down. You have de facto amnesty in this country with 11, 11 to 12 million people who are living here illegally. Right. I agree with that. Go ahead. I just want to touch because we you talked about welfare briefly, and we didn't get to, to build on that. Uh, one thing we have to keep in mind when it comes to welfare, uh, when we talk about welfare, I you know talk about welfare for everybody, not just immigrants. There comes the music. But the main thing with it is that the welfare for people that come into the country legally, illegally, is a fraction compared to the welfare we're giving to, to corporations, to the welfare that we're using on military and interventions. You know, the, the the billions, hundreds of billions, even a trillion. When you want to look at all the years we've been in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's just a fraction of that. That's, that's, I just want to make sure we make that clear because the welfare is not as huge of an issue as, it, as, it, as people think it is. Well it's, a, well, it's a different type of welfare. But, again, I don't think you, you're also suggesting that you're, you want to expand the base of people that you provide welfare to. Maybe people, you, maybe you people that are better. If you want borders, you're saying, wait, come on in. I want more people you're, paying into the welfare on, system. We're going to put you in the prob- welfare. I want more people paying into it. Who's going to pay for the, for the, for the uh, Social Security? But they can't do that unless they are immigrating legally. They're still, they're still, paying, into, they're still paying into it. They'll never collect those benefits. Back for another full hour when we continue from Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. hard enough, go off the beaten track far enough, you'll find an America teeming with the unusual, the odd, the downright strange. I'm Will Klinger, and I'm your guide on a package tour we like to call Wild Travels. Join us on our weekly road trip to see America's most offbeat and unusual attractions. Wild Travels, available on your local PBS station.
or it darn well should be. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. For the first time ever, get an inside look at the making of SNL. Critics nationwide are raving over 500 artifacts direct from the show. Be a part of Wayne's World, Weekend Update, and so much more. Experience all it takes to put the show together. Now at the Museum of Broadcast Communications at 360 North State Street in Chicago. For tickets, visit museum.tv. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida, so why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sip cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. At HiltonUniversal.com, they let you be the star in Hollywood. Stumont back in Chicago. We're getting some, uh, we got a call, which we're going to go to, but we got a, a text that's coming in here uh, to our libertarians. Libertarians never make any sense when you push them on details. Idiots. <laughs> Let's talk about oh, it. Let's talk details. We'll do the whole two hours about it, Bruce. Well, we were going through the, we were going through the details on, on, on what would happen if, if you just open the borders, yeah. I think that was what, what, what got him. Let's go to Roger listening to us in Austin, Texas on KLBJ. Go ahead, Roger. Good evening, Bruce. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you've always got great, great conversations on your well, program. Well, that's our goal. And you asked some great questions, too. Thank you. You know, this conversation on immigration is kind of gravitating a little bit to uh, – uh, welfare benefits, and I think that's a really great place to discuss because you know many like to reminisce about America being a country of immigrants, Ellis Island, and all that, and ask you know why why don't we have open borders? We're a country of immigrants. Why don't we let all these people in? But when that mass immigration took place a hundred or more years ago, we we didn't have all these taxpayer-funded institutions of medical care, education, housing, cash assistance. And those institutions are magnets for illegal immigration. Here in Texas, over a third of our school children can't speak English. 
Births to undocumented immigrants are in the majority in our public hospitals. And these are rarely talked about. Costly free emergency room, uh, emergency room care under MTLA is a first-line source of health care for many of these individuals. And this imposes a huge burden on taxpayers, and, you know, it rarely gets discussed. Every child of an illegal immigrant in this country costs in Texas about 12000 to $13,000 a year right, to taxpayers. Roger, stay on the line. I want, <laughs> let, let's let Alex respond to some of these points. These all have costs mm-hmm. associated with them. Who pays for them? Well, we're, the taxpayers are paying for them now. Um, are you referring how many to taxpayers any- do you need, and how much do they have to pay? If Roger is explaining what's happening right now, we've had, we, we have umpteen reports that have come into this program over the last 20 years about people living in California, and they go to the emergency room for an emergency that they have for their U.S. tax-paying you know, children mm-hmm. or, or family. And they have to wait. They have to wait because those waiting rooms are filled with illegal immigrants waiting to get their free. Well, I think it comes down to reforming the welfare system in the first place. If there isn't necessarily an incentive to come to the United States because you know you're going to get care um, regardless of questions. But how would you reform that? Be be specific. How would you reform that to someone coming from Guatemala? Because it is a magnet. I think Roger's making a point. It is a magnet. People are coming here because they think that many of them, I think, are coming here to look for a job. I want to stress that. I'm not saying the majority. But there's some people that are coming here because because of the magnet of welfare. Yes. They They can get on a welfare roll somewhere. Yeah. So my question is, how do you stop that thinking? I mean, uh, you, if I you, had the answer, I'd probably be in Washington. Well, yeah. Well, the, the, Bruce, the, yes. there isn't a good answer. And when you look at, let's get off healthcare and into our school system. In Texas, we fund our school systems principally by property taxes. So you have to be a property owner. And most of these <laughs> immigrants that are illegal don't own or can't own property and don't pay those taxes right. yet. They have many children in our system. We estimate in our Austin Independent School District, a quarter of the school district's students are student children of illegals, and we have an over-billion-dollar budget annually in that school system. That two, a quarter of a billion dollars a year that homeowners have to fund to educate these children. Now, I don't, I don't have a problem with people wanting a better life, and, and, you know, wanting their children to have a better life. But, you know, at some point, where, where do we draw the line? Because these costs are becoming unsustainable. Okay, look, go ahead. Look, Chris it, immigration just is one of those issues that you cannot take a broadsword to. I mean, the answer is going to be in like on 100 scalpels. And welfare, there's no question, as we've talked about, Mass migration will be the prevailing trend the next 100 years. There's no question people are coming here uh, for gain, for public, public assistance. Um, but at the same time, that's, the poor will always be with us, said a person who's got 2 billion followers in the world. You're always going to have that. But if you had a system worked out of guest worker, the pressure on the welfare system will, will be that much less. And I, I think your assumptions, Roger, are, are kind of off. Um, uh, yeah, there's been uh, many, many studies that have said that 
um, immigrants, especially undocumented, contribute more to the system. I mean, they, they pay FICA taxes. They pay sales taxes. Sure, they consume but, public but, benefits. But, sir, sales taxes don't pay a $50,000 hospital bill for a woman to have a child, which is very common. And the majority so, so in our public do you, do you want to eat a $20 salad? I, I mean, it, yeah, these undocumented, they support our economy. But, we need them. Th- so the, the choice real, comes down to, do you want to grow your sir. food or do you want to import it? That's the choice. Well, they, we're not talking about food. We're talking about the cost to educate and provide health care mm-hmm. that is tens of thousands of dollars each year. And that money is coming from the taxpayers here. And you know what? In our country, we have a lot of needs. We have a lot of citizens here that don't have health care. So, Roger, I I agree with you. I agree with you that we have a generous welfare system in this country. But it's not fair to say that if we were to uh, make that that, that system more stingy, that that would fix the problem. The problem is way greater than a a, a so-called generous welfare system. Beth. Well, let's say people immigrate here, um, and we say, fine, come in, but you don't get welfare benefits, um, would that dissuade people coming in who wouldn't otherwise be paying into the system and finding well, jobs? Well, well so, so, so this is Bingo. a, this is a yes. good point. This is a good and point. It can't be turned down it's, from a hospital. That's, you, you right, know, that's, a diff- but, that's another, it's an yeah. extension of the problem. Beth, Beth talked about this social technology and how information travels much more quickly than it did in the 80s. Uh, there is a greater aptitude for our rules in Central America. They know if you come with a child, it's more complicated to eject you from this country. So that's why so I they're say gaming, it's they're gaming correct, the system. Correct. They're gaming they're, the system. They're, Bingo. But, right. but, but, but hold on, Roger. It's, it's, it's a distraction <laughs> to say that all the focus should be in the welfare system. You have to do the work with the entire system. That's why you need a comprehensive approach. I think, you have to, I think you've got to be specific in the signal that you send that, that we've reached a point in America where enough is enough. Because if you bring a child and you can get a, if you can get a picture of that child and have, have some photographer take a picture of it, you have a complicit media in the United States that believes that every single one of those children should be allowed into the country and the families. And for God's sakes, don't, don't tear gas them. I don't support tear gassing children. But you know what? Some mother, some father decided to bring their children from Guatemala to the United States border. You know what? If that was happening in the United States, you know what that would be called? Child endangerment. DCF, DCSF facilities all over the United States would look at a parent that did that and say, you know what? That child should be taken away from that kid because they've endangered the children. And suddenly, when we have that you know, in a picture on television, the networks are all painting a picture that how horrible the United States is because this poor mother wants to get to the United States with her poor children. Snap, snap, snap. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. 
Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Here's a comment from Martin. Isn't it unfair to millions of people from India and China that they don't have the land access privilege as the Hispanics have? Is that unfair to them? I think anything. Anybody think it's unfair? Based on where I, it's unfair. Just, I'm born in Illinois. Well, if you want everybody, <laughs> but, but you want everybody to come open access. I think they should be able to come over here. I don't think it should be a problem. I want to, to, to address it a couple things. Be a problem? Yeah. What are you talking about? For people to be able to come over and get some papers and then be able to, 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 to buy some property or start working. It shouldn't have to be that complicated of a process for people to be able to get into this. Our government, there's a, you know, um, uh, our governor. They should have to, you have, do, you, do you agree that they should have to wait for it? Uh, no. What's the point of waiting? You, we have people that will sign up to go into the military, immigrants that will go into the military. They'll do three months of training or boot camp, and then as soon as they're done, they can go right through a naturalization process and become a citizen. The government can do it when it but wants to. But they have to. to have a job. Get them a job. There's nine million jobs right job. now that we can't get filled. Who, who's who's going to get them the job? Who's going to get? Well, it's not like who's someone's going to stand who, up. Who is going to give them the job? Let, let's get let's delve like down a, to like an organization or yes. Okay, well, first of all... Uh, You're saying let anybody into the country that you want, okay? Anybody that They're wants to come They're all at the here. border, okay? Uh, I'm not saying come over How do you find them a job and a place to live? Let's back out for a second. Do you uh, go under underground Wacker? There's plenty of extra space in oh, underground Wacker. There. It's warm down there and all it's the buildings... It's warm down there, yeah, but, but you get a, lot, a lot of homeless veterans are living there. Yeah, and, and, and it's terrible. If there's anybody we, that our government should be taking care of, it's the veterans. Well, are we going to kick them out and, and bring the, the people from Guatemala and India over there to let no, them... No, if people... Here's the thing. What do you want? But give me a specific. Give me, let me get... Bruce. <laughs> okay, so... I don't even want to give him a card. I want to... Yes, let me just go through this. First of all, the, the earlier gentleman that said that, that immigrants come to Texas and they're not buying property and paying property taxes, they're paying rent somewhere. And I guarantee the property taxes are factored into the rent. They're paying this money through all these different all these different processes. I want to talk about money in and money out. The first thing is charity and private funding. There are tons and tons of organizations that can handle this when government doesn't restrict them and put them out. We just had a government agency pour bleach and chili from a private group that was trying to feed homeless people. A few years Years ago, we had, we had a pastor getting arrested in Florida for trying to set up a feed the homeless thing. The private charities will work. Unfortunately, not every group has been around for 100 years, like the Shriners, that can take care of people's medical costs, whether they're immigrants or the people that are here. These groups can exist. Hold That's on a the, small group, though. I know it is, and it okay. really isn't that large. Uh, it's the exception to the rule. Which go is ahead. why we need more, because government is what keeps them down and prevents them from getting okay, the money. The other problem is the money coming in from the other side of it. Health care and education are ridiculously overpriced and expensive, and they should not be. We don't let health we don't let insurance companies uh, compete across state lines. Uh, we have state mandates that force people, force an insurance agency to pay for. I, I want to get insurance to cover cancer or getting in a car accident, and they put marriage counseling. W- the government makes these costs super expensive, so when someone's going to a hospital and not getting turned out, the costs are overinflated. Th- there's two angles to look at this from that nobody wants to talk about. So what about. are you going to do to the hospitals? 
to do that. I want to lower their costs so that people so, so that how are you going? How is the government going to lower their costs by getting? Do you, out want, of the, do you want government to get involved in managing that? No, I want government to stop overregulating in the death and overregulating the cost they're going to pay between the insurance companies and the medical area. We can have. Uh, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Someone's going to go in and get a license to perform medical surgery. Who do you trust that coming from? From the medical association or from a politician or a bureaucrat? You know, we can get this kind of thing through a private market, through organizations that people trust, that have a, have, have a, a, a built-up credibility. The government has no credibility. All they do is get involved, they take over student loans, and then the go- predatory but, banks. But getting- the government, you, you, I, I think you're mixing up the problems that you see of, of, of the average American yeah. and the U.S. citizenship. Yeah. When the discussion we're having is what about those that do not live in the United States? And then they come here, and now they're going into a broken system with overinflated costs. They're going that, and they're into a broken system. Well, we can't figure out. They're still coming in here, and the system isn't fixed. Mm-hmm. Don't you think we should fix the system first? Yeah. The system I, yeah. is huge. The system is well, multiple facets. Right. I, I, I don't Shouldn't just... we fix it first? <laughs> yeah. Well, health care... I, fix health care, fix you, you education, line, then we'll get to right? And I, uh, I don't disagree with you philosophically, but I, but we're talking about immigration. We're also talking about uh, controlling our borders. And, you know, national sovereignty is not a headline campaign issue, but it's something I think every American feels viscerally. You know, we, we, we should have a right to control our borders. And you... Um, uh, there, there's a process in place that's broken, and we ought to start. We ought to, we ought should to start we shut, there. Should we shut down government if the president doesn't get his wall? What do you think? I want to shut if down government anyway, but no, absolutely it not. Absolutely not. The wall. The, shut down. Um, let, let's get Beth. Beth, should they shut down government no. if the president doesn't get his wall? No, and it how will is he going to get his wall? It will backfire on the <clears throat> shutter downer. It always does, um, and uh, you know. Is it a literal wall? Is it a figurative wall? I mean, I think the wall is border security. I think improved border security. Um, no, I don't think you shut down government I think over if you that. Ask Donald I, Trump, I think it'll he backfire. He thinks it's a wall. He thinks it's it's a physical wall. I, I think agree with you. Only. I, he thinks it's concrete and barbed wire. Well, oh, I think, and, and I think we, he wants we enough have, of it to make a great walls. photo op. That's, that's right. right. Well, and that's we have right. we actually do have border walls, so it's not that this is a new thing. But I think that that's what that means. We got lots people. of people standing by. Let's go to Cal, listening to us in Spokane, Washington, on KXLY. Nice to hear from Washington tonight. Go ahead. Hello, Bruce. Hello. Um, I'm wondering, as an employer, why don't we go after employers? who hire illegals. Amen. I agree. If, if the jobs dried up for illegals, they wouldn't try to come in here. It's an economic invasion <laughs> that we're experiencing. So my solution would be, if ICE came knocking on my business door, I want to see your employee files, every file should have a Social Security number, a name, and a date of birth. Yeah. If those three don't match, that's an illegal. But and, la- and last the fine, week on the—Cal, the let me just let me make one point. The, the, the policy that you're talking about, the program, it's called E-Verify, and it does put a responsibility on government to make sure that those working for that company are legal citizens of the United States. But that only affects a certain degree of ownership. There's, there's a lot of people in the United States that fall below that because the company doesn't employ a lot of people. But I agree well, with you. I only employ, I employ about 80 people in that's a lot. Nevada, and I'll guarantee you every one of my employees we called in. 
So- that, that's terrific. The Republican who was here last week, uh, guest on this program, he was saying that too many business owners complain about it because of the cost and the burden it is on the employers. Yeah. And also, well, the reason say, we don't uh, have E-Verify is the Speaker of the House at the moment, Paul Ryan, has never pushed for that because he's in bed with the, with the Chamber of Commerce. So if you don't have business, the business community, Republicans and Democrats, that's one of the reasons why you don't have it. I totally agree with you that there should be a responsibility for every employer, employer to determine the veracity of his or her employee staff. There's another side of the coin to an overly generous welfare system, which which you could argue on the merits, yes, no, maybe. Um, But then the other part of this is there's jobs here that these migrants know no one else wants to take. And what employers get is cheap labor under the table illegally. Okay, so the last time we reformed the system was 1986, and unfortunately that law missed the boat on employer sanctions. I agree with Cal. Employer sanctions is part of the solution, as is E-Verify, as is a whole, a whole other string of other measures, learning English, paying taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but I, I, the, the thing is, is employer sanctions is part of the answer, and you've got to do this in a comprehensive way. Cal, what, what, what would you do? If you could wave the magic wand, what would you do? Well, as I just described, every file would have to have a name, Social Security number, and date of birth that match, and the employer would be fined one year's wages at prevailing wage the first time. The next time ICE shows up, and it might be a different employer, but if he has the same incident, uh, then it would double. So he'd owe two years' worth of wages at the prevailing wage for, the wage for that job, what that person was doing. And the third time, the employer would go to jail. Alex, what do you think of that idea? That would dry it up. I just don't agree with uh, putting limits on employment. I mean, even if we do have illegal employment. I mean, like to your point, there's a lot of jobs that aren't uh, being filled. And if somebody's willing to work that job, I think that's fine. Well, that's because people want to pay them too cheap. I think you've got to be even-handed about it. $50 to clean out cow stalls, somebody would do it. How about a crazy idea that we let an employer, a let a business owner hire whoever the hell he damn well wants to work for him and work out a private contract with those people on a person-by-person basis? Why does the is government a, need to be used as a weapon to threaten here, people? And, and why do we have you, to have you, an... You do because realize you created a pr- protected class yeah. of employers that, 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 that are exempt thing, from the, the laws. Thing, uh, no, the, no laws, the laws, the let's problem, let Cal the respond. what we need to fix. Let's let Cal respond. Go ahead, Cal. Our labor force here is like one giant pool. And as we increase the size of that pool and don't increase the number of jobs, wages actually go down. So anybody who wants wages to go up, you should be labor or lobbying for less employees and just the laws of supply and demand. Uh, look, look, to me it comes down to one thing. All of these uh, raids that we had, uh, under Obama especially. Let's not forget that. Yeah. He was the deporter-in-chief. All of these raids that we had that, it, uh, that found out all of these uh, illegal employees, the question is, should you punish them and the employer or just the employees? That's an important question. I happen to believe it should be both because that's going to send a message. Right. That, that's going to send a very strong message that, that don't make that 2,000-mile journey. Cal, last word to you. 
Well, he's already um, uh, We're out of time. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for calling from Spokane. 1-800-723-8029. When we come back, more calls. Don't go away. vacationing in Florida. So why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sip cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Back. Let's go to Brian in Roselle, Illinois, You're listening to us on the Internet tonight. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning, Hi. or good afternoon, excuse me. You. Uh, you know, I'm in the construction industry, and I deal with a lot of immigrants, and I think about the immigration issue a lot. And uh, listening to the logic of your uh, libertarians, I would assume that they would like to do away with, along with welfare, they would do away with minimum wage laws. Yes. And... You know, if we just apply the simple supply, you know, law of supply and demand to the labor market, what's that going to do to America? I mean, one of the biggest problems in America right now is half of America can't make enough money to make a living. There's a lot of jobs, but they don't pay anything. That's the problem. People can't earn enough money. Now, the libertarians say, we'll just let everybody in the world into the United States. That's idiotic. No, because most of the people that come here from other countries start businesses. They create wealth. It's not one pie that has to be sliced up a million times. You bake more pies. I agree with you that we should get rid of minimum wage laws, but that's because minimum wage laws price uh, uh, you know, low-skilled workers out of the system. That doesn't help anybody. We need people at all different levels, uh, education levels and work levels. Right, but people can't afford to live. If you increase the population... That doesn't increase the level of housing. It doesn't increase the supply of fresh water. It doesn't increase hospital beds. Actually, if you, if, if, you bring, if you bring more it people in, the we, can, of workers. we can build more houses. We can have the housing market go down as we're seeing that happen now. You can bring the cost of so many things down when you have more people creating wealth. There's, there's not a limited – it's not like Bitcoin. There's not a specific number out there of money. I agree. It's way too expensive to live in this country, and there's a, a hundred different ways that it's gotten expensive. It, immigration does not have to be one of those ways. I think you're way too idealistic. I think the real world is yeah, our country's a mess. I'm idealistic. Shanty towns and favelas. Look at Rio de Janeiro. What do you got? A small number of ultra wealthy surrounded by shanty towns. That's what you would have in the United States. Exactly. 
No, that's that, what happens is when government puts these laws in place, like they put restrictions on businesses, restrictions on hiring. Uh, occupational licensing is a huge thing we have problems with, especially here in Chicago, where people, uh, even people come out of the military with great experience and they can't work because they don't have a stupid license that's put in place that they have to spend thousands of dollars to get. You remove a lot of these restrictions and you can open this market and make everybody else wealthier, bring, you know, all ships rise with the tide. That's the goal. But there's enough Americans who are looking to have to be on that ship that's rising. I don't think you have to open the borders to bring people in from all over the world to do it. We need them. The, you it's unsustainable you over the next need 50 them years. All. Are you saying well, you think you need, we need all of Central America no. to come here? Well, what's the magic number? There is no number. I don't think, I don't, you, think no a, number. you think a government so bureaucrat's going to so, find that number? So, no, so it's, uh, I'm talking about a libertarian. What is the magic number? There is no number. We shouldn't have a so government putting a number on people. Everybody. You want everybody in. Well, everybody or anybody. Would you but like to see the Democrats pick up on this idea? Of open borders? Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump I says don't the Democratic think... Party stands for open borders. Not like they, anybody we've heard at would this Would the table Democrats today. be in favor of reducing the welfare state? Because I doubt that. And no. like, I, like I initially mentioned in the beginning of our broadcast, that you can't have both. You can have an open border and no welfare, or you can have a welfare state. You can build a wall and not let anybody in, but it's just unsustainable. Now, in your background, you, you, have, you have managed some Democratic campaigns for state legislature. Sure. Yep. You now are a libertarian. Sure. What do you want to do in the future? There's, there's 21 people running for mayor of Chicago. There's going to be more than that running for president of the United States. You're a young man. You have campaign you know, management experience. What do you want to do next? Um, well, Who do you want to get elected? People that are in favor of uh, freedom okay. and liberty, whether it be economic freedom, personal freedom, um, like we're talking about occupational licensing, for example, um, reducing the barriers for people to uh, work and have a life that they find fulfilling to themselves. Are you so going to find is, that person in the Democratic Party? I don't really believe so, and I don't believe I'll find it on the, in the Republican Party either. So are you announcing that you're going to be... Uh, Running no. his campaign for whatever he's running for next? <laughs> uh, I have, I'm tired of running campaigns. I did enough of them this year. Yeah, I'm not really um, – I'm, I'm in the business world right now, so I'm kind of out, outside of politics trying to kind of see what, uh, how most Americans live their lives and mm-hmm. live in the real world rather than the kind of bubble of politics. I want to go, go back to, to Beth for a while. Uh, Beth, uh, uh, thank you very much for your caller, uh, uh, for your comments to the caller. Tell us a little bit about this group that you're with. It's called the Policy Circle. You're, um, you're the instigator of this. How did this idea get started? Uh, well, I am one of the instigators. Uh, so this is an idea that took root in the suburbs of Chicago a few years ago. So um, a few women got together, and they wanted <clears> to <throat> learn more about policy. We, just, we weren't finding other outlets um, and a place to do so. So... Uh, we started meeting. We read the first five chapters of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, and um, and we had a few women come together, and that group grew from five to 60 in a matter of six months. So we clearly were on to um, a need, and so that group um, <clears throat> has grown into the policy circle. Um, so it was launched nationally three years ago um, by three co-founders, and what it is, it's a network of women. It's grassroots. Um, and they meet in uh, circles, in, which are in neighborhoods throughout the country. And they meet to learn, um, really through discussion, about public policy and the impact it has on freedom and prosperity in our country. And so one of my jobs uh, with them is to edit the policy briefs, which are used as the discussion material. 
um, and then I was the co-leader of this original one. And we are now 184 circles in 34 states and growing, and actually 188, I checked today. Uh, before I came on. And so it's been a real, it's been a great outlet and we are really reaching women who kind of are on the sidelines when it comes to talking about and learning about policy and really engaging them. And what has been really um, inspiring is to see that women, once they um, gain some confidence and they learn, they want to go out and do. And so you see them wanting to go. So when they, when they go out and do, again, you're talking about just Policy, it, it's nonpartisan at the moment? Uh, it is nonpartisan. Okay. It's so not an education educational is, mission. You get everybody riled up because you talk about the issues. Yeah. You've got maybe half the people want to go one way, half the people go the other way. Do you then encourage them to go and get involved in campaigns to carry this knowledge <laughs> of policy? With them, mm -hmm. um, so it is nonpartisan. I would say mm. it has somewhat of a point of view where public policy that best fosters creativity um, tends to come and fall along more of the free market uh, line, um, and so. We, um, yes, I mean, what a woman does after being inspired by the policy circle is, is her thing. Uh, we've had people start other nonprofits. We've had people run for office. We've had people work on campaigns for the first time. So um, it depends on what, what the woman's passion is um, and what her interests are. By the way, are. before we go off the air this evening, I will ask for you to give your website sure. uh, so that people can uh, write that down and uh, they can go and find out more about it if they want. Okay. Let's go to Paul in Caseyville, Illinois. Where is Caseyville, Illinois, Paul? Hello? Are you there in Caseyville? Well, let's go to Mike at KXLY in Spokane. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Well, as you know, this coming Friday is Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, where in 1941, Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor. Yep. The loss of life was um, 2,335 military total loss at 2,405 uh, surprise attack. And then the American intelligence at the end of the war asked the Japanese military why they thought they could win. And they said because in the 1930s, we saw the Army practicing with wooden rifles, wooden rifles and wooden tanks. So, you know, a strong defense is the best offense. Okay, and uh, go back to the beginning of our discussion this evening uh, do you have any thoughts or opinions on George Herbert Walker Bush? Oh, man, you know, very much. He was very positive, a very civil person, and I'm praying for him. He worked with both Republicans and Democrats, and he was accessible to all people. And we, know, we need more like him in office, and God bless George Bush. All right, but, but we're, in the, we're in the new century now. Uh, we have a man in the White House now who is a long way from George Herbert Walker Bush. In your opinion, based on what you want to happen in the world, Mike, whose role whose role should be filled? Would you like to see a person that's coming along that's going to be more like Donald Trump or someone who's more like George Bush? Oh, no. No, we need we need we need more people like George Bush. Bush, both Republican and Democrat, because today uh, civility in politics and in life is, is, is disappearing very quickly. Chris, how do you find that? Stay on the line. We're going, to, we're going to discuss that. How do you find a level of civility? Because some people would say George Bush, uh, you know, he lost the presidency. He won the presidency because he was running for a third Reagan term, but basically on his own. He lost the presidency. I, I, I don't uh, – put, put, put policy matters aside. 
I don't think he lost the presidency because of his temperament. And so this guy, um, I mean, this guy actually, you, you bring up Pearl Harbor, and I, I remember reading today that uh, he wanted to uh, do a, a Pearl Harbor commemoration where he met Hirohito. And by the way, we're talking about a government that really at its core was evil. I mean, if you've ever read about the rape of Nanking, what the Japanese no. did there, what the Japanese did in China, China still harbors the, the hatred for what Japan did in World War II. Uh, it just it doesn't go away. And in, in many ways, World War II started with Japan's invasion of China. I, what I'm getting at is George Bush didn't, didn't say we should forgive Hirohito, but he said we should move on. And I just think that's powerful, really powerful today. And like you hear a guy like Dan Crenshaw in Texas talking about this. And I just think there's strength there when you show restraint and you're able to uh, master a situation instead of it mastering you. Okay. Back shortly from Chicago. Los Angeles? Looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. At HiltonUniversal.com, they let you be the star in Hollywood. Back in Chicago. Um, Beth, what should we do about Russia? Specifically okay. as it relates to what's happening in the, in the Ukraine? I thought it was a good move on President Trump's part to cancel his meeting with Putin. Uh, because I think Putin wants to reestablish the Soviet Union, and I think he's being a bully. I mean, he already took over uh, Crimea, and I think he's asserting himself, and so I think we do need to stand tough. I personally have never been a fan of the president kind of um, sidling up with Putin, uh, so I was, I was just glad to see that, that behavior at the G20. Uh, your reaction, Chris? Vladimir Putin said uh, the biggest geopolitical disaster for Russia was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So the, the, there is something to that. And the, the, this conflict, um, now it's sort of spilled over. It's, it's not so furtive, uh, Russia's involvement right. in, in the, um, trying to undermine Ukraine. This thing of seizing the ships, it's scary. It's scary. It's dangerous. You could see you could see a play for Putin why he'd want to escalate this crisis, and sort of test Trump's mettle on this. Should we should we 
be prepared it, yeah. for a military action against Russia if this continues? I hope not. I hope not. And I, I think we need to stay strong with Ukraine. I, I think a lot of what you see is sort of, I hate to use this term, but like in the shadow government, where, where like people like the Pentagon or um, th- they're the ones who are advancing the policy. Um, Trump is just sort of a go-along. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he's got two different minds on this. But, but the real action is happening behind the scenes that possibly Trump doesn't know about because he's just not, not you know, keen on the details. Um, so, I mean, the policy right now is the correct one. Um, Trump, I mean, to his credit, I mean, he, we have expelled Russian diplomats whenever they've gone too far. Um, but it, it's an area of concern. I mean, because for some reason Trump has got this thing with kind of international bullies, dictators, uh, just loves to saddle up next to them. Loves bullies. Should we prepare to take military action against Russia at some point in the future? I think Alex? that's an awful idea. Um, I think the number one uh, goal for America is to avoid military conflicts. Um, and it's, So Russia should be able to march with their armies wherever they want to go? Uh, I don't necessarily believe that's the best uh option, but I also don't think that the United States should be fighting in these types of wars. Um, I think Should they be part of NATO to, to fight these aggressions? I don't necessarily... I have mixed feelings on NATO. Um, I think Trump is right in one respect, that it does um, kind of uh, allow the countries in NATO to kind of use our military. Obviously, we started NATO after World War II, so it makes sense, but... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe Ukraine is part of NATO. No. So, it's not. Um, I mean, I think the number one goal, like I said, is to avoid military conflict. And I think having meetings and talking is the best option. I think canceling the Putin-Trump meeting is a, a bad idea. Um, I'd rather talk. I'd rather have Trump talk than uh, use military force. Your reaction, uh, Brian? When when can you define the proper use of U.S. military action? Mm. When does it come for you? Yeah, as a libertarian, it comes in the form of defense only. The problem with Ukraine is that they need – the problem with Europe is they have a large welfare system that has been completely supported by us providing their military, and they expect us to defend these things. No, they should be relying on, on Germany and the other countries around there, and Putin is a master politician. Germany gets a lot of uh, – they, they got a gas pipeline or an oil pipeline that, that's going to be running through there already. Uh, he's got the politics all lined up. Uh, let me give you an example of something. Right now we're already talking about bringing a bunch of anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons and missiles and giving all these weapons to Ukraine. Two years, Russia goes, takes over that big chunk of land. Now they've got a bunch of our weapons. We've done this in Iraq. We've done it in Afghanistan. We've done it in, exactly in Syria, yeah. in, in Yemen. I'm tired of giving other so, governments but, but here, our weapons. Yeah, but I want to I go, go back to my question. Can you define a situation when the use of military force would be supported by you personally. When we are attacked here on our homeland. Only when we're attacked. Yes, only so, when attacked. So a 9-11 attack, our response to a 9-11 attack is okay. That was not by a government that attacked us. That was by a terrorist organization and from, from should Saudi someone, Arabia. Should someone, had pay, should someone have paid a price for the 9-11 attacks? Uh, yes, somebody should have. How we went about doing that is different. I, know, I think the Saudi Arabian government, I think other governments should have been held accountable for taking care of that, as opposed to us going, propping them up, giving them money, giving them weapons, and then getting involved in a proxy war in Yemen on their behalf. And what should we do, Beth, with the situation with Saudi Arabia and President Trump and uh, uh, the, the murder of uh, Mr. Khashoggi? Um, 
you know, I think in no way, obviously, should President Trump, um, I think you should take him to task. I mean, I think it would be fine to say publicly, um, this was not okay. In fact, this is a horrific crime. Um, it is a complicated situation in the Middle East. I think that's an understatement. What should, we, what should we demand from him? Let's say the president goes on the air and says, uh, Sheikh, I, I, put, I lay all the blame on you. I've reread the CIA reports, and I think you did it. What does the president do next, Chris? I, th- I, th- this but, president can't act. Trump is Trump. He cannot do it. No, he cannot do it because yeah. Trump is captive to his own impulses, his but own what, glandular what impulses. What would you want the president and, and, and of the so, United States well, to say? I, the, all of this could have been handled appropriately behind the scenes, I don't, where it should have been. I don't want him to say anything. Bring the weapons. Bring the troops back. Stop supporting them. Yeah, I don't know if it's that easy. So you yeah, don't should believe be. there's a problem you called do Iran. You be, do you believe that Saudi Arabia would respond in some way in which the cost of oil? was greatly increased in the United States if we took the firm position that you just articulated. Well, I think it's interesting how the cost of oil... say nothing? I think it's interesting the cost of oil plummeted after that guy was murdered and everyone's supposed to just kind of whitewash that. Maybe if you weren't putting sanctions on the Iranian oil, we could buy the oil from them and keep our costs down. But you should... You would consider the cost of oil. Um, I would, but not far enough. Not when it comes to to killing people and sending weapons and getting involved in war. No. No blood for oil, Bruce. (laughs) <laughs> One reporter, cost of oil. Compared to the people that are dying in Yemen? You put them on the same level. No, I'm putting the people that are dying in Yemen on the same level as that. Brian Lambert, thank you very much. <laughs> Alex, thank you very much. Alex Hirsch for joining us, our two libertarians. And Beth Feeney, give the uh, address, or the website address. Uh, yes, it's www.thepolicycircle.org. You can get all the, the Policycircle.org. Chris Veronis, thank you very much for being with us as well. Our thanks to Fritz Goldman and Sam Greenberg and Dan Dorfman for the assistance in the production of this program. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from... If you look hard enough, go off the beaten track far enough, you'll find an America teeming with the unusual, the odd, the downright strange. I'm Will Klinger, and I'm your guide on a package tour we like to call... Wild Travels. Join us on our weekly road trip to see America's most offbeat and unusual attractions. Wild Travels, available on your local PBS station, or it darn well should be. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. For the first time ever, get an inside look at the making of SNL. Critics nationwide are raving over 500 artifacts direct from the show. Be a part of Wayne's World, Weekend Update, and so much more. Experience all it takes to put the show together. Now at the Museum of Broadcast Communications at 360 North State Street in Chicago. For tickets, visit museum.tv. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida, so why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sit cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. 
even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City at HiltonUniversal.com. They let you be the star in Hollywood. Hollywood. 